The difficult thing is that people are hungry today. If they sell a pangolin for $25 today, that's $25 they can buy their rice with and feed their families. Thanks for tuning in to episode 9 of season 1, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome everyone, wherever you're joining us from, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of We Blue Dot. We're joined today by Julie Vanassa, who is the director of the Labasa Wildlife Sanctuary in Liberia. Julie has an interesting background of zookeeping and conservation, and I'm excited to give listeners the opportunity to hear more about her work in the only wildlife rescue centre supporting a variety of species in Liberia. So with that, Julie, welcome to the show, and thank you for giving us your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for the, for the chat, by the way. <laughs> No, thanks for reaching out. It was you that reached out to me first. So it's, it's great to meet, yeah. meet new people and have new guests on the podcast. So, so to start off with, can you tell us all um, where you're joining from today um, and what life is like there at the moment? So um, I am here in Liberia. At the moment, we have 117 uh, animals at the sanctuary. Like you said, we are the only uh, sanctuary to uh, rescue, rehabilitate, and release different species of animals. Mm -hmm. And so at the moment, we have 88 monkeys, we have about 10 antelope, we have 15 parrots, we have some birds of prey, a few crocodiles. Oh, <laughs> um, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it's a, a variety, that's for sure. It sounds like it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What's life been like in Liberia over the last year? I mean, as I presume everywhere has been affected by COVID and stuff the same, the same way as, as everywhere else in the world. Exactly. So we are a charity, so we rely on donations and people visiting the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the worldwide lockdowns and the travel bans, nobody came to the sanctuary. And um, these entrance fees, so we give tours to people. We... we mainly show uh, animals that can no longer be released and then uh -huh. we, they, they become ambassadors of their species and then we can educate people and, and when schools come we can educate everybody and so these entrance fees they really help us pay the food bill and so yeah last year nobody nobody came and yeah. it, was, it was not easy but uh, we re we received some emergency grants and emergency funding from partners uh -huh. just to make it through the year and uh, we are now hoping that uh, this year will be better. <laughs> uh, and yeah. Hopefully, yeah, I think everyone's feeling the same, no matter what line of work they're in, but particularly a lot of the people I've been speaking to, you know, that are working in conservation. Um, yeah, it's not, it's been a tough year for everyone, but hopefully, as you say, thing, things will be better the, Definitely. this year. Yeah. Now, before we get into talking a wee bit more about your current work and the sanctuary, I like to ask all about, your, the, the guests themselves and their backgrounds. So can you tell us a wee bit about where you're from and what life was like where you grew up? Um, I, I'm from Belgium. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I used to be a, a zookeeper in Antwerp Zoo. Oh, cool. Um, I looked after the chimpanzees and the gorillas for uh, 10 years. Wow. And uh, I, really, I really loved the job. I had an amazing colleague 
But then at the same time, I thought, am I going to do this until I retire? I don't know. <laughs> and then I started to look for uh, other opportunities online. And uh, I found that I found this job ad that they were looking for someone to start um, the first multi-species uh, sanctuary in Liberia. And I applied for the job mm -hmm. and I was lucky enough to be selected. So I took one year off from the zoo. Uh, I took a sabbatical for one year to start the sanctuary. But then after one year, I had to go back home. Mm -hmm. And um, then I realized that uh, I, I really wanted to continue working at the, at the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I got a salary sorted for myself, I uh, left the zoo <laughs> and then and then moved to Liberia. So wow. yeah, wow, quite quite a big change, I can imagine. Yeah. And did you? I mean, before you became a zookeeper, did you did you go to university or college? Did you study something to do with animals? Yes. So I I, I went to college mm -hmm. and I studied animal care and applied zoology. And I was extremely lucky because I was always a little bit of the outsider in high school when everybody said, what would you like to be when you grow up or what would you like to do? And I was always the only one in my class to say, I want to do something with animals. Yeah. Um, so I was always a little bit of the outsider. And um, so I, I graduated from high school and it was time to choose, to choose a, a direction I wanted to go in in, in, in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was a little lost because um, veterinary school and, and studying biology seemed a bit too difficult for me at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was a little lost and I didn't really know what to study. And it was um, my Dutch teacher at the time. She came to me and she said, oh, Julie, I have found the perfect thing for you. They are starting this whole new training, this whole new college program it's called animal care and applied zoology. It's to become a veterinary nurse or veterinary assistant. You can do pretty much any job with animals except veterinarian and, and biologists. Mm. But she said, this, will, this is something, this is for you. You really need to go there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I you know, looked up uh, everything and, and did my research. And I said, yeah, this is it. Mm -hmm. And so basically my class was the first class to ever graduate uh, from this in Belgium <laughs> because it was a completely new program. So it came at exactly the right time in my life. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So my class, uh, the class of 2006, which makes me feel very old, <laughs> but the, the class of 2006 was actually the first class to graduate in Belgium. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Wow, that's that sounds. It's interesting that I've always had an interest in animals and and conservation, but I didn't always want to work with them. You know, I wanted to do all sorts of different things throughout my life, from being uh -huh. from being a dancer to then I did a, a, at university. I did archaeology, and yeah, I've had a bit of a, oh, wow. a roundabout route. But it's nice when I hear like people like yourself who, yeah, you just had that passion and then you found a route into it. And um, I mean, yeah. after after college, I mean, did you immediately get a job in, in a zoo or did you have a few other jobs beforehand? Uh, my very first job was at a pet shop. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't my, my dream job, but it was a job. But in the, in the meantime, I was looking for, um, for other things. And during uh, college, I did my practical in Antwerp Zoo. And um, 
So or my internship, I don't know how you call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, so I kept in touch with Antwerp Zoo and uh, I, I, I kept writing them if they had a job. And then uh, one day there was a job opening in the great ape section. And uh, yeah, I even, I've even done some, some waitressing jobs in between mm -hmm. um, until the job at Antwerp Zoo came along and, and then I, I grabbed it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, and so you worked with, what was it gorillas and chimpanzees? Did you say that you worked yes. with? Yes. Gorillas and chimpanzees and some, some uh, other monkeys tamarins and and marmosets and uh yeah 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 i can imagine i mean i've always had a great interest in apes in particular so i can imagine that was pretty amazing because they're so like humans you know they're so like us absolutely absolutely and that is both uh what's great about them and that's also what's challenging about them <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah imagine if you you did that for 10 years did you say so you you gained a lot mm -hmm. of experience and got to know a lot of the the animals very well um mm -hmm. i know i know mm -hmm. i've not been a zookeeper but i've worked in zoos and i know um how much the keepers love their work and you get so attached to the particular animals that you're working with it's it's true and now so i still i still keep in touch with my colleagues uh almost every day and every time i have the opportunity to go home i visit the zoo mm -hmm. and then there are always some uh individuals some chimpanzees always the same chimpanzees and the same gorilla <laughs> when they see me they come to me Aww. and they greet me yeah. and it's really nice to see that they still remember me mm -hmm. and and that they come and say hi yeah <laughs> always always the same three. Oh, that's <laughs> that's lovely that's nice that whenever you go back yeah you can still have that um but, yeah and do you do you have a particular love for apes and monkeys or or do you like working with all sorts of different species um well, I actually love working with with different uh with different species I don't really have um, a favorite species to to work with if I can be really honest I think working with gorillas is a lot easier than working with chimpanzees <laughs> <laughs> I really love gorillas I I really really love gorillas they're very chill very laid back mm -hmm. Uh, no drama chimps is, is drama yeah chimps is, they're very they're very emotional and they can be so sweet, but in a second, oh, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> where, they, where they start screaming and fighting and, and it's over in five minutes. Yeah. What was that all about? Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I know. I mean, I've been around chimpanzees in, in zoos a lot. And yeah, there's a lot of drama, as you say, and a lot of noise oh. um, and a lot of cheekiness as well. But they're, they're so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I've seen that, as you say, it kind of it's usually they're just shouting for a few minutes and then they all calm down. They know gorillas, um, gorillas and other apes like orangutans and stuff do seem a lot more chill, chilled out. Oh yeah, they are a lot more laid back. No worries, just eat and, and sleep and play a little, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds good to me. Um, so, and when you, I mean, you, you mentioned already that you, you took a year sabbatical, so you maybe thought mm -hmm. you were going to kind of go back to zookeeping, but, but mm -hmm. what, what made you decide to, to go for the opportunity in Liberia? Did you, did you just want a change or, or some new experiences? Um, well, yes, everything actually. So um, I, I just wanted to be more hands-on in conservation. I wanted to, because at the zoo, of course, you take care of endangered animals and you do a lot of education and a lot of awareness to the public. 
but I wanted to be more hands-on in conservation, really. I, I really wanted to help animals and, and you know, the, the whole rescue, rehabilitation and release aspect. That's what I, I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the, it, it, it was a perfect opportunity at the time. Again, uh, I, I was very lucky. Yeah. The right opportunity at the right time. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was pretty much it. I just wanted to be, I, I wanted to do more hands-on conservation uh-huh. instead of just talking about it. Uh-huh. I, I wanted to be here doing the work. Yeah. I know. I can understand that. I can understand that. And you, I mean, you will get on to talking about the sanctuary next, but for someone like me who has obviously never been to Liberia, um, can you tell us a little bit about it, about the landscape and the culture and the different animals that you can find there? Oh, Liberia is, first of all, a very green forest. So a very green country, sorry. So it's mostly covered in forest. And Liberia is part of the Upper Guinea forest. Um, and Liberia actually has, it, it's um, the country that is most covered in forest from, from all the countries where the forest stretches. Wow. So um, it's a very green country. It's actually a biodiversity hotspot. So there's animals here that don't occur anywhere else in the world, like pygmy hippo and, and um, I mean, it's it's a it's a huge biodiversity hotspot. Um, it's a very uh, actually the the country has everything it needs for ecotourism. So, like I said, the forest, but then of course a beautiful beach. Um, it has amazing landscapes. It's a, it's a great country, but of course Liberia hasn't had a lot of luck over the past few years with uh, two civil wars, um, then uh, the, Ebo- the Ebola crisis in 2014. So 4,000 people died here in Liberia. And now of course with COVID, but that's global. Um, yeah, Liberia hasn't really had a lot of luck. Uh-huh. So it's a very poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. I think last time I checked, it was ranked fifth poorest country in the world um people don't have anything here have to live off a a dollar a day um it's uh there's no jobs or not many jobs at least and uh it's a it's a very underdeveloped country at the moment Uh and um i mean no that it must have been quite uh for me i mean thinking of if i was going to go and work somewhere like that it must have been very exciting but quite kind of daunting as well because it would have been quite a challenge maybe for for you compared to where you were used to living and working oh yeah <laughs> so basically when i came here so the sanctuary was founded by uh, owners of the of the eco lodge and um, they just needed someone to set it up and, and manage it. So basically, when I arrived, what I was given was a piece of land and 10 enclosures. And they said, do your thing. Uh-huh. Uh, they said, we don't have the time for this. We don't know anything about this. It's yours. Do whatever you want. Uh-huh. So I was very lucky in that aspect that I, that I was able to, to make it my own. But at the same time, looking back now, uh, sometimes I think, where where did I get the the I wouldn't say the courage from, but I'm I'm happy that I went in being completely naive mm-hmm. 
because I was very naive mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and maybe a bit crazy, maybe a bit stupid, maybe a bit of both. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a good thing that I didn't know then what I know now, because otherwise I don't think I would have applied for the job. <laughs> So, yeah. so you have to be a bit naive and, and crazy and stupid <laughs> to do it. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure you're glad now that you, you did that, as you say. I am. <laughs> I am. But like I said, sometimes it's best not to think about it too much and to just do it. Yeah. Because it's true. It's not a bit, when I, when I told people I was coming to Liberia, most people tried to talk it out of in my head, they said, you're not really going to Liberia, are you? Mm. <laughs> and they said, but it's a country with civil wars. And, and, yeah, um, and you, but you were you just thought, no, I want to go. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll talk more about it. But it sounds like there's a there's a need for a wildlife sanctuary and there's a need for work with all the different species that live there. Exactly. So, well, well, I mean, you mentioned it as a part of a kind of near an eco lodge. But um, mm -hmm. but why were why was there a kind of demand for this sanctuary? Is it is it most? normally tourists that the all you know part of it is is the tourism factor but obviously I imagine there are a lot of species that are struggling in Liberia. Yes so the sanctuary actually started when the owners of the eco lodge saw um, a lot of bushmeat being sold on the road they saw many monkeys being chained in a house uh, and they they said we need to do something about it mm -hmm. and so they like I said, they provided the land and they built 10 enclosures. At the same time, the wildlife law in Liberia was being revised and uh, is, is still uh, under construction, by the way. But at the time, it was uh, being revised. And they said, well, if we have a new wildlife law, um, we will need a place to bring all these confiscated animals to. And so it pretty much came together at the, at the right time where the authorities, the local authorities were revising the wildlife law and wanted to implement the law and the start of the sanctuary. So it really came together. And so we still work closely with the authorities. So they, when they bring the animals to us. So yeah, that's basically how it, how it started. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, I know what the rules and the laws are, obviously, in the UK, you know, and where I live. But but yeah, are, as I was going to ask, are there any kind of rules and regulations around um, like the illegal wildlife trade or, or certain species as pets in Liberia? Or is it still a kind of work in progress? So there are there are definitely laws in place. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a huge lack of implementation of that law in, in Liberia. So, for example, all primates are protected by law and primates cannot be killed or sold or kept as pets. But unfortunately, it happens on a daily basis all over Liberia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, everybody just got away with it. Mm -hmm. um, but now we have a confiscation unit that was also that was funded by the European Union. And we have FDA in there, the local authorities, the Liberian National Police. And um, now when people keep monkeys as a pet, people get prosecuted. Uh -huh. um, so now we are hoping that with more prosecutions, people will now understand that you cannot keep monkeys as a pet or that you cannot kill them for bushmeat. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, well, that's to talk about that specifically. I mean, I, I worked in a, in a zoological collection and we used to talk quite a lot to the public about about monkeys in particular being kept as pets because it's people see them as these cute little fluffy. I mean, I'm talking mm -hmm. about over here in Europe, you know, people see them as these cute little fluffy things and they see videos on social media of them, um, you know, little marmosets and all sorts of things. And they just think, oh, I want mm -hmm. one of those. But but, and I imagine, I know as well, one of the things we talked about was the kind of tourism side of it, of, you know, of, of the, like the photo prop industry and stuff in, in other parts of the mm -hmm. world. Um, mm -hmm. You've got a background, obviously, in particular working with apes and monkeys. But why, I mean, for anyone listening, why does a monkey not make a good pet? Why would you try and discourage someone from trying to have a pet monkey, whether they're in Liberia or they're in Scotland or they're wherever? Well, first of all, a monkey is a wild animal. Yeah. Um, monkeys or any wild animal don't really want to be with us so they're not domesticated so for example a dog that is domesticated a dog has a natural tendency to be around people dogs are happy around people they want to be in a house in a family dogs are yeah dogs want to be with people in a way because that's how we've domesticated them a monkey absolutely does not want to be with a human mm -hmm. it wants to be with its own family mm -hmm. and in living its own life in the forest it doesn't want to be in someone's house and sometimes they will even not here in liberia but in other parts of the world they will even dress them up in clothes and, yeah. and pretend like it's a child mm -hmm. it's not a child mm -hmm. it's a monkey it's mm -hmm. a wild animal that has absolutely no desire to wear clothes mm -hmm. and to live in someone's house mm -hmm. um and so also, you don't take these monkeys just like that. Every monkey mother will protect her child. Mm. Uh, the whole family, the whole troop will actually protect the, the infants. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to take a, a baby monkey, you pretty much have to kill its mother or kill its family in order to take the baby. Mm -hmm. So if you agree with that, because you want a monkey as a pet, mm. I seriously believe you need to change your, your way of thinking because there's no way to justify killing someone's mother in order that you can keep it as a pet in your house. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is what happens here in Liberia. So all the monkeys that we have here are orphans and their mothers, they all, they've all been killed for the bushmeat trade. So the parents are always killed for the meat. Mm -hmm. And when there's a baby walking around its mother or is in the presence of its mother, or even worse, is still clinging to its mother, mm. then that's like a bonus. That's something additional uh, that you, you get extra money when you sell it as a pet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, in a way, I understand if it's a poor, if it's a poor country, people want to make money, mm -hmm. so they will do whatever uh, to make money. But of course, we try to educate people that this is not the way to do it. There are other ways of making money, but selling wildlife is not one of them. And the like you mentioned, obviously, I mean, it's a very poor country. So people are mostly, I imagine, catching things for, yeah, to survive it or to offer bushmeat. Mm -hmm. But, and we'll come back to that. But, mm -hmm. um, but if someone does, you know, say cat kill the mother for bushmeat and then they have found a baby monkey, will that baby then be sold on and then end up maybe in another part of the world? Like, you know, or is it, a, are there primates coming from Liberia and traveling around the world in the pet trade or is it mostly just staying kind of more locally? 
it's locally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The babies are sold as pets um, here in Liberia. It's just, uh, it's usually a toy for the kids to play with. Yeah. Um, especially also in the, in the rural areas. I mean, children don't have toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people think, oh, let's just give him a monkey to play with. And uh, also just to, co- to come back to your, your previous question, why they don't make great pets. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have huge teeth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for example, Suti mango bees, they are um, the most commonly kept pet here in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have 54 here and we have a list, a waiting list of, of Sutis that need to come. Uh, they're pretty big monkeys. They can weigh up to 12 kilos uh, when they're adults. They have huge uh, canines. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, they can seriously injure someone when they attack, but also they carry, a, all monkeys carry a lot of diseases that can make you sick. Mm-hmm. For example, also T-Mangabees, they carry the SIV virus, and that's where HIV derives mm-hmm. from. They can give you leprosy, they can give you hepatitis, they can give you all kinds of diseases. So that's yet another reason why monkeys are not great pets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can attack you and they can make you sick. Mm-hmm. So. Those are good points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, that's the thing. And I think more people that I know anyway that I don't aren't maybe as knowledgeable or interested, say, in, in the natural world as I am this year because of COVID, I've, I've suddenly become interested in, you know, zoonotic diseases and, and things that are transferable from humans to animals and animals to humans. So I think um, mm-hmm. one good thing to come from it, I guess, is that the awareness has hopefully been raised a wee bit of why we should and shouldn't do certain things um yeah with animals i mean we've talked about monkeys so what other species do you see coming into the to the sanctuary day to day you've mentioned a few already but it sounds like quite a variety yes we get a lot of reptiles a lot of crocodiles we get antelopes uh we get dikers and bushbuck uh parrots birds of prey and uh, also pangolins um, we get a lot of we get a lot of pangolins also. Mm. And are most of these animals, as you say, injured from by the like poachers or, or you know why are they why are they coming in? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because um, they um, because FDA, so that's the Forestry Development Authority. They have the authority to arrest uh, people that are committing crimes in the forest, whether it's deforestation or hunting or. Um, poaching yeah and so these all the animals that come here were either animals that were on their way to Monrovia to the capital to be sold or animals that were uh, kept as pets or animals that were seen being sold in the capital already so all the animals that we have here uh, are all victims of uh, of the illegal bushmeat trade or the illegal pet trade yeah yeah. Wow, it's such a variety as well. And um, and you mentioned the pangolin there, obviously, um, which I know mm-hmm. a wee bit about, but can you tell listeners a little bit about pangolins and um, what threats they're facing? So there are eight species of pangolin, four in Africa and four in Asia, and um, all eight species are not doing very well. And that's because in both Africa and Asia, people eat them. So here in uh, Africa, and especially in Liberia, there it's considered sweet meat. They, they, people call it sweet meat here. And also, they are heavily hunted for their scales because in Asian countries, there's a Chinese traditional medicine where people believe that these scales can cure all kinds of diseases 
from skin diseases to helping you with your milk production when you're breastfeeding mm. to cancers to but this is not true these scales are made of keratin just like your fingernails mm -hmm. and they don't do anything for you it's just a common belief that they can cure diseases but it's not true so the the asian species have been almost poached to extinction um and so um people from Asian countries are now coming to Africa to take the African species and ship them to China or Vietnam uh, to be used in traditional medicine. So it's both the fact that they're being consumed on a daily basis in both continents and then the fact that they are poached for their scales in both continents as well is as a result, uh, pangolins are not doing well at all. Mm. Even three weeks ago in Cameroon, um, four tons of pangolin scales have been confiscated. That's about 13,000 pangolins that were killed wow. to be shipped to Malaysia. And I think also in Malaysia, they, they confiscated um, three tons of, of scales on their way to Vietnam. Oh my God. So yeah, it's not going well at all. And, and I mean, if anyone listening has, hasn't seen a pangolin, I'm sure they have, but I mean, they're not a very big animal, you know, they're quite a small animal. So, so to have three tons of pangolin scales, that is, yeah. as you say, thousands and thousands of animals. Um, yes. And then I think it was interest, interesting you mentioned that in where you are, it's seen as sweet meat. And I understand, as you say, it's a very poor country. People need to catch mm -hmm. what they can. But I mean, if they catch a pangolin, I imagine it's like in a double deal. You know, you've got meat, but you've also got the scales that you can then maybe sell on. Um, but as you say, it's the same as, you know, like rhino horn or your fingernails or anything. It's just keratin. Yeah. So it's just made out of the same stuff as your nails. Um, but I do, I mean, I've had these kind of conversations with loads of members of the public and all sorts of people about it's the kind of power of of storytelling and the power of belief as you say that um that is driving it and unfortunately there is there's a huge demand for it so so that's why you know people in likes of Liberia will will hunt them and, and try and sell them on yeah and and poverty poverty is also a, a key factor because there's a lot of Chinese companies working in Liberia mm. and if, if people make deals with Liberians, okay, you eat the meat, I will buy the scales off you. Mm. Well, yeah, nobody yeah. is going to say no when you need the money and when you're hungry. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a very very complex problem that you cannot solve in 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 five minutes. It's, no. it's a very complicated problem. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that's one of the things I was thinking about when I was I was like preparing to talk to you today. I was thinking it. As you say, it is, it's a poor country, it's had civil wars, all sorts of problems in recent years. And people, I don't, you know, people are, I imagine, mostly doing it, um, you know, to feed their families and to survive. So how, I mean, how do you approach that in a, on a local scale? How do you kind of approach the local communities? Um, is it all about educating and kind of raising awareness about how endangered the species are? Or, or what do you guys do? Yes, we do. We do a lot of awareness. And what we're trying to explain is that, of course, there are alternatives to eating pangolin or monkey or any other animal, um, because basically here in Liberia, all animals are being eaten, whether it's a bird of prey or a crocodile or an antelope or a monkey. Uh -huh. everything. Yeah. So we, we try to explain that um, when you keep these animals alive, and you, you work hard to promote ecotourism in Liberia, 
-hmm. It will not only create jobs for you, it will benefit the country because these people, they will come by plane, it will create jobs at the airports, then these people need a place to sleep, hotels will, will do very well, these tourists need a place to eat, restaurants and bars will boom, the economy will be great. Yeah. But that's the difficult thing is that people are hungry today. Mm-hmm. So if you if they sell a pangolin for $25 today, that's $25 that they have where they can buy their rice with and feed their families. Mm-hmm. So then it's very difficult to explain to people if you keep this pangolin alive and you let people come to Liberia to see these animals in the wild, you might make, I don't know, $1,000. Yeah, but that doesn't feed their stomach. That doesn't fill their stomachs today. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. The, the fact that they can make one thousand dollars next year yeah. doesn't help them today. Mm-hmm. So um, we do try to explain the value of every animal in the forest. That there's a, an ecosystem that's fragile. When we disrupt the balance of the ecosystem, forests will will die, and and we need the forest. Mm-hmm. To, to survive, we, we, we need the forest. And that's when we also tell people that there are alternatives to eating bushmeat. And that's, of course, raising chickens and goats and pigs. But also, like I said, it's a taste preference. Yeah. People have been eating pangolins for generations and generations, and they really like the meat. And if suddenly people come and say, oh, from now on, you can no longer eat it. Well, yeah, it's what they've been doing for generations. So then it's very difficult to explain to people, okay, from now on, you have to eat chicken and pork and and goat meat. (laughs) We still have a very long way to go, Um, but we do try to explain to people why it would benefit everybody if you just keep them alive and and keep the forest healthy. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's very, like I said, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. it is and as you say it will take time it won't it won't just happen overnight but um but you I mean you've been there is is this the fourth year that you've been over there um and it's, uh, yeah yeah and it's been running so so what tell us a wee bit more then about the Bassa Wildlife Sanctuary I mean what's the kind of a typical day like in the running of it well we don't have typical days <laughs> um so um in those four years that we've been operational uh we've had 560 animals coming in um uh, 530 sorry and 260 have been released so what we do is so it's the team is me and uh, a vet and then four local staff that have been trained to become uh animal caregivers and so Basically, our, the first thing we do is check, make around, uh, walk around the sanctuary, check if everybody is healthy, if everybody's okay. Then 90% of all the animals that come in at the sanctuary are babies because the parents are always killed for the bushmeat and it's the babies that are sold as pets. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're always hand rearing something, whether it's a genet or a civet or a monkey or a pangolin or a bush buck or anything that needs a bottle yeah Uh, we're always hand rearing something so basically we're giving bottles throughout the day and throughout the night Mm -hmm. and uh, of course we've um, tripled in capacity so we now have over 30 enclosures that need to be cleaned Um, so there's a lot of cleaning involved for me it's a lot of fundraising and and keeping the place going accountancy salaries uh, reports 
um, all the boring, boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, our vet is doing a lot of health checks during the day, a lot of, um, um, yeah, just overall making, giving treatment to everybody who needs uh, treatment. Um, and then sometimes we know when an animal will come in and we can, we can start preparing. Sometimes they just arrive at our doorstep and we have to be creative in, in how to tackle it, yeah. how to tackle the situation, because of course we're running out of space all the time. And um, yeah, sometimes uh, an animal gets sick or an animal collapses, or uh, then it's uh, all hands on deck and, and we have a few emergencies. We have quiet days also, which is nice. <laughs> so we can all get a little bit of a breather. <laughs> but um, yeah, we don't, I, when we wake up in the morning, we never know what's going to happen that day. It's all just one big adventure. <laughs> yeah, and it'll be seven days a week. You know, I imagine you don't hardly, oh, yeah. hardly get a break when you're looking after. Well, you mentioned obviously a lot of the the, the animals that come in are our babies are very young yes. I mean how do you as a as a keeper particularly a zookeeper with primates I'm sure you know a lot about obviously the effects that hand rearing an animal you know a lot of people when I used to work in a zoo a lot of people would say oh that sounds like the dream job you know they think it's very hands-on you think that you, they think you cuddle all the animals and all this kind of stuff how do you balance <laughs> that hand rearing and caring for them but also you know the aim is I imagine to get them to a point that they they hopefully can be re-released and, and go back to being wild animals so uh, how do you balance that and I imagine there's some that as you say end up staying in the sanctuary as um mm -hmm. and, and you know as the kind of species that you can educate people about but there, there are a lot of them you want to release as well yes it's a, it's a very good question <laughs> it's not easy uh, so basically of course with the it's actually it depends on the species so um, monkeys will have to stay at the sanctuary for a very long time before they get released. Um, when they're baby babies, they hold, they need physical contact mm -hmm. for their physical and mental well-being. Mm -hmm. So we have staff here that will literally monkey sit the whole day, uh, <laughs> where there's monkeys attached to them, and then we give them bottles, and then as they get older. They will play with monkeys their own age, and then we still we're still involved, and they still, yeah, they, they still hang on to us and 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 interact with us. But they also start playing with their own kind, so they're kind of like weaned off humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but because they stay here at the sanctuary for a long time, they do bond with us, yeah. which is not great. But it's it's we cannot avoid this because we cannot deprive them from physical contact with us yeah they will they will have a met they will have mental issues it will be a mental health uh, problem but um for example for the antelope we don't play with them we don't interact with them we don't talk to them we just give them a bottle and we get out yeah and in some cases it works they stay wild and in other cases after a while they get used to us and um, they, they come to us and they have lost their fear of people. So of course, this is not great. Yeah. Then when it comes to, for example, a genet uh, or a civet, when we hand rear them, they know the bottle, they know us, but they are nocturnal animals. And when they reach a certain age, they go to the outside enclosure and we start, um, when they get weaned off the milk and they get fed a normal diet, we feed them at night 
-hmm. and like they would in the wild. And for all these nocturnal animals, we've noticed that at one point, something clicks in their mind, their, their carnivore instinct kicks in and they start fearing us again. And they have very little contact with us because when they are awake at night, I am asleep. Mm -hmm. So and when I walk around the sanctuary, they are asleep. Mm -hmm. So they kind of wean themselves off people. Mm -hmm. And at one point, yeah, natural instinct kicks in. They start chasing after lizards. They start hunting for themselves. So nocturnal animals are actually the easiest to, uh, <laughs> to yeah. release. When it comes to the crocodiles, same thing. They don't really need to spend a long time at the sanctuary. Even as hatchlings, they can fend for themselves. So as soon as they come in, after a few days or weeks, we are able to release them. They still have their wild instincts. Yeah, it really depends on the species, but it's true. Sometimes we, we succeed in keeping them wild and then sometimes we fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but that's the, the, the main reason is to release as many as possible mm -hmm. um, because I'm in charge of the budget. It now costs $2,000 a month uh, to feed all the animals here. And I don't want to see that number increased. Yeah. <laughs> so when I when an animal comes in, I, I always make a lot of always do a lot of calculations in my head. Oh my God, this is going to cost me this much. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that is a huge, that is a huge motivator. Yeah. <laughs> to keep them wild <laughs> and not to cuddle and not to play and not to, you know we need to keep them wild because my budget cannot handle it <laughs> yeah but I mean it's, it interests me in general um as I say maybe like we're talking to people who haven't maybe had the same kind of background as you or me but I think sometimes people you mentioned at the beginning that you know these are wild animals at the end of the day some people in my life seem to think that humans are the best thing you know humans can care for them humans can do this and that but you I imagine would agree with me that the best possible thing is that these animals get to go back and be wild animals and avoid humans and stay away and hopefully oh. hopefully not get caught again you know um so it it's it's interesting to me I I've always loved animals and I'm happy to watch them from afar you know I'm happy to see them mm -hmm. as you say in their world in their world counterpart so um I mean talk a wee bit about them some of the releases and um, um, did I read something about you releasing the the monkey species you were talking about earlier on are you are you going to be releasing them in the, in the next wee while so we've been we've released 260 animals yeah. um, but unfortunately no primates so far because mm. primates they have a very long childhood and the reason for that is because they have so much to learn from their mothers mm -hmm. they need to learn what to eat what not to eat the trees they grow on uh, the trees, the, fr the fruits grow on, when they are ready to eat, the seasons of the forest, the dangers of the forest, how to establish a territory, how to live in a social group. Yeah. There's so much to learn. They learn these things from their mothers, but unfortunately their mothers have been killed. Yeah. And um, what you want to do when releasing primates is a soft release where they will go into, we would like to build a pre-release enclosure in a protected area. They will go there for a few months just to get used to the place. Mm -hmm. And then we want to put collars and radio collars on four monkeys. Of course, we will do the necessary health checks before release. But then we will open the doors. Technically, they will be free. They will be released. But we will still provide food for them twice a day for the first six months. Mm -hmm. We will have eco guards following them. We will have FDA rangers protecting them. So they can get to know the forest in their own time. 
and they don't have to worry about food. Yeah. We will provide the food, you start learning away. <laughs> and then after six months, we will feed them once a day to encourage them to go and find their own food. By that time, we're one year further. They have gone through two seasons in the forest. They have you know, learned a lot about forest life. Mm-hmm. And then for the next six months, we stop feeding them completely. And we still monitor them. We still follow them. And when we see that they can find their own food and they've established the territory, we leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the complete opposite of releasing a crocodile as soon as it hatches and is fine. Well, there you go. Good luck. And, mm-hmm. and he will be fine. Yeah. For monkeys. Yeah. And that's why we need to raise a huge amount of money. It's about $80,000. We've already raised 10. So we're, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um yeah, that, this is why releasing monkeys is, is a very, very expensive and difficult uh, thing to do. But if we pull it off, we will be the first in Liberia to do this because nobody has ever done this before. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pioneer work. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds like it. And I mean, you mentioned obviously fundraising and the I can imagine the amount of money it costs just to even, as you say, run the place. So, but how mm-hmm. can people listen at home support your work if, if they want to? Well, we have several uh, links at our website uh, to donate. You can donate as little as $1. Um, any, it, it, it's a cliche, but it's true. Every dollar helps because it's not, there's so much more that goes into having a rescue center. It's not just the food. It's not just the salaries. It's not just the enclosures. It's also milk replacers because I need to buy different types of milk replacers abroad because it, it, it's not here in Liberia. So I need milk for the antelopes. I need milk for the, for the civets, for the pangolins. I need all these different things. I need to buy medication abroad. Um, but there's also, you know, the silly things like, oh, we need a new wheelbarrow yeah. or we need brooms and, and the staff has to get vaccinated or we need uh, a new fridge or we need, um, it's all these little things that, that people don't think of but in the end cost us a lot of money also and we we also Uh need it so every dollar or euro or whatever (laughs) that's being donated it 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 goes to the animals it it really Uh the animals so um and and after and after the last year with covid as you say with having no tourists or anything i can imagine you guys need it Mm -hmm. need it more than ever um so if if i can help a little bit by sharing some some of your stories via my podcast then i'm I'm happy to do that thank you thank you so much (laughs) thank you so much oh no it's great on a side note i can hear a bird in the background what is it is it a parrot yeah that those parrots they never they're never quiet (laughs) so yes so every video that I make for Instagram you will not doesn't matter where I am in the sanctuary you will always hear the parrots (laughs) no it's good it's it's realistic sound effects it's good Um, we we are nearly running out of time but there's just one more question I was going to ask I can ask everybody who's on the show You've obviously had the experience of being both a zookeeper and working in conservation. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that I know that are maybe listening that I would really love to get into either or both of those kind of jobs. Um, what advice or tips would you give to someone who's maybe early in their career or, or trying to decide what to study at, at university? You know, What advice would you give to them um, so that they can work in the same kind of jobs as you have? 
I would rec I would highly recommend volunteer and volunteer abroad. Expand your network. It really helps when you know a lot of people who can help you um, find your way into into these types of jobs. Um, don't limit yourself to where you live. Um, travel um, and 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 volunteer. I, I've also volunteered in South Africa. I've volunteered in in Congo, in Guatemala. I've I've volunteer and expand your network that's that's the main thing get experience and get to know people at the same time mm -hmm. yeah no, that's good advice contacts are always good as you say and, yes. and yeah once it's safe to get out again in the world we can all travel and stuff then yeah get out there and and take opportunities as they come up like you did um, <laughs> when you went to and people can come and if, if if the world you know like you said gets mostly back to normal i mean people can come and volunteer here also mm -hmm. because we not only need we not only need volunteers with animal related skills we could also use a volunteer with great photography skills mm -hmm. uh, or with great building skills if you are an engineer or, or a, a great builder and you have a passion for wildlife also you can help us build new enclosures mm -hmm. um, so we don't just need volunteers with animal related skills anyone with a skill <laughs> can i'm sure there's something with i'm sure there's something you can do here at the at the sanctuary mm -hmm. so yeah no it sounds great and and as i say when i post this out i'll share all the information and try and help help raise awareness about what you guys do it sounds like you thank you're you. all kept very busy and um and you're doing a really good job thank you uh, we have as i say come to the end of the time but um but thank you so much for coming on today and thank you for giving us your time and and for getting in touch with me in the first place you thank you <laughs> Thank you, thank you. The, the thing is, and maybe that, that's one thing I, I just want to mention, is that uh, one of our biggest challenges that we have is that we are a sanctuary for the lesser known species. We don't have a iconic animals like lions or elephants or rhinos or chimpanzees. We have Suti Mangabees, Campbell's monkeys, Maxwell's dikers, mm -hmm. and we have the animals that nobody knows. And if you don't know about these species, you don't know that they're in trouble and you don't know they need help. And so what's very difficult for us, and, and this is also why I'm reaching out to everybody, is because I also want people to learn about the lesser iconic species. And we, we are a sanctuary of the underdogs mm -hmm. and people need to know the underdogs. So that's why I'm always very excited to talk about Suti Mangabees and pangolins and the lesser known species, because they also need help. Mm -hmm. And I'm more than happy to share um, their story and our work with everybody. And, and this is why I'm, I'm always trying to um, this is why I'm always reaching out to everybody who wants to listen. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, this is a challenge, a big challenge. Yeah, but as I say, thanks for, for telling us all about it. It's been really interesting to hear. Oh. And, and I didn't know anything about you guys, so it's it's I've learned a lot already. So, um, so oh. it's, it's great, as you say, and it's really important to to point out, as you see, the underdogs, because they're all part of the ecosystem and they all play their part. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. they're all just, exactly. they might not be as cute and fluffy, maybe, but they're still as important as any other species. So, um, so exactly. yeah, thank, thanks for all the work that you do and, and thanks for sharing it with us today. No problem. It was all, the pleasure was all mine. <laughs>